So we're going to be in chapter 3 this week, and we're calling it Invest. Invest in wisdom. What does it mean to invest? Investing is when you spend your resources on something, and you're hoping to get a return. So often we use the term investing when we're talking about investing in a business. You might help someone start a business. You might give them some money to help start a business, and you're a business partner, and then you hope that that business will make money and will get some money back. Or you might invest in a retirement account or in the stock market, and you're putting money into something. Again, it's kind of a business, and you're hoping to get some money back on that. There's all kinds of things we invest in. You might invest in a relationship, hoping to get something good out of that relationship. You might invest in education, hoping that there will be a return on that investment. Uh, The first major investment I made was at the age of 10 or 11. I had a birthday party and I got some cash, some money at my birthday party, and I was so excited and I decided to invest in something I'd never done before, and that was to invest in a subscription to a comic book, okay? Because I understood that I could just go down to Eckerd's and spend my 50 cents on a comic book, or I could send off some money to New York City, and they would send me a comic book every month in the mail. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I just like was blown away at this idea. So I, all by myself, I took the cash, I pulled this little form out of the back of the comic book. You could fill it out and give them your address and sign up for which comic book you wanted. And I took the wad of 10 $1 bills and I stacked that up with the form in the envelope. I found a stamp, I mailed it to New York City, and then I never saw a return on that investment. The comic book never came. Aren't you sad? I hear some awes in the audience. My little boy heart was so broken. I remember talking to my mom. I was like, what's going on? She's like, oh, honey, you can't put a stack of cash in an envelope and mail it to New York City and expect something to come back, right? She had to teach me that you have to hide the money or wrap it in something or just send a, you know, one bill that you could contain so people don't know there's cash in the envelope. So my cash had been stolen. It was taken from me. I never got a return on that investment. What we're going to see in Proverbs chapter 3 is that we can invest in wisdom and we will always get a return on that investment. It's better than any business you can invest in. It's better than uh, any relationship you can invest in. Investing in God's word will always pay a return. It's always going to bless us when we do that. We're never going to regret investing in God's word. So let's read Proverbs 3 verses 13 through 35. Starting in verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom 
it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he's scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. We study the Bible each week because we believe here we are listening to the voice of God himself. We're not just inviting ourselves to study God's word as abstract principles that stand on their own, which they do. But it's a connection to a relationship. It's listening to the very voice of God. So we want to pray that God's Spirit would help us to be good listeners. So let me pray that He would be with us and He would help us to hear His Word. Let me pray. God, thank You that You love us. Thank You that You're with us. We pray that You would open our eyes, our hearts, open our minds, that we would listen to Your Word. Teach us Your wisdom, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move through this text and we think about the idea of a true investment in wisdom, we're going to see three ways that this unfolds, three benefits, three returns on the investment, if you will. Uh, And so first of all, we want to invest in better riches. There's a contrast between normal earthly riches, gold and silver and treasure, and the greater riches of wisdom. So invest in better riches. The second point is that we're going to invest in relative fearlessness. Relative fearlessness. There's going to be a certain kind of fearlessness that we get from investing in wisdom. And then finally, invest in true power. What is true power? If you want to make an impact, if you want to um, influence those around you, where does true power come from? It comes from investing in God's Word. So number one, invest in better riches. We see this in verses 13 through 18. Invest in better riches. Riches. So again, in verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Okay, this is a pronunciation question I have for you. Do you say blessed or blessed? Blessed? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you say blessed? Okay, man, the blessed win. My wife is right. All right, see, she tells me it sounds weird when I say blessed. So that, I think that's like an old fashioned or possibly a more holy way of saying it. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> the idea of blessing is God's favor, goodness, right? The good life, good things, right? You have real blessing if you find wisdom. And just to clarify, finding wisdom in English, the way this is written, it kind of sounds like you're just stumbling along. I'm like, whoops, there's some wisdom, right? But in Proverbs, it's like you're looking, right? You're searching for it. Like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're hungering and thirsting for his righteousness. You're saying, God, help me find wisdom. I need wisdom. I don't have it. God, I need it, right? You're, you're pursuing wisdom. And if you pursue it, you will find it. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. So that's the comparison, right? It's better than these other riches. It's better than the gain from silver. Her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. He's saying, this is better than the other money that you've been investing in. 
Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, we should care about our money. We should care about our business, right? That's a part of the life that God has given us to live. But he's saying there's something you should prioritize as the best. This is the most important quality of riches that exists. It's wisdom, which again is not just facts about the universe and facts about God, but it's listening to God's voice. It's a relationship with God biblically. He goes on in verse 16, long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. So there's this concept here is as you prioritize the better riches of God's word and listening to him, you actually end up having earthly riches as well. And we said again and again, as we study the Proverbs, it's not mechanical. It's not like I've obeyed God five times, and so now I get $5,000, right? It's not like a one-to-one relationship. It's just a general principle of how God has wired the world. As we obey, there is real blessing and obedience to God. But sometimes we're going to look like Jesus, who sacrificed everything for us. Sometimes we're going to suffer on behalf of other people. But the general parameters of how God has set up the world is, yeah, there's blessing as you obey. Like It generally goes well with you as you obey Him and as you listen to His Word and listen to His voice. Verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness and her paths are peace. Peace. This is the word shalom. Peace. It is bigger than how we often use the word in English. In English, peace generally means you're not fighting anymore. Like the war is over. That's usually what peace means in our terminology. But in the ancient Old Testament uh, concept, shalom was the way things are supposed to be. It's the way that life is supposed to operate. And so I, I like to talk about sometimes you are having these moments in life where you see the sunset and it's just so gorgeous. And that's like a taste of shalom. It's a taste of peace. Or your children are happy and content and playing sweetly together. Those little moments you're like, ah, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? Or that perfect meal or that wonderful moment with a friend, that deep conversation, beautiful music. Here's one that might uh, connect. Um, You're sitting outside and there's a cool breeze, right? Can you remember what that was like? (laughs) Sitting outside and there's a cool breeze. You're just like, ah, this is what it's supposed to be like to feel the air on my skin, right? Those little moments are little moments of shalom. And God promises in the end, he's going to make all things right. Heaven is going to come down. It's going to break into the here and now. And every time we listen to God's voice, it's a little break in of heaven, of the future where God makes everything right. It's a little piece of heaven breaking into the here and now. As we obey him, as we listen to his voice, we're kind of we're bringing a little bit of that down. We're establishing his rule, his, his kingdom reign on earth as we love people and serve people and obey him. It gives other people a little taste of shalom, a little pa- a taste of that pleasantness, that way things are supposed to be. Verse 18 says, She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. It just feels better to say blessed to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Those who hold her fast are called blessed. She's a tree of life. What does that mean? Well, there's an image here from the Garden of Eden, right? There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were locked out away from the tree of life, right? They were shut out of paradise. So the world we live in is this experience of being separated from the tree of life, longing to be reconnected with the tree of life, right? And so just like Adam and Eve said, God, we want your stuff, 
but we don't want you. We've all done that same thing. God, I want the blessings, but I don't want to be in relationship with you. I don't want to listen to your voice. And as we do that, we're locking ourselves out of paradise. We're separating ourselves from the tree of life. But as we listen to his voice and as we see the grace that he gives us, we're reconnecting with the tree of life. Again, Revelation, the end of our Bible, gives us this picture that the garden is going to be reestablished, that heaven's going to come down, that paradise will be restored, and it talks about the tree of life. This image, it's going to come back. We're going to be reconnected with the tree of life in the end. But every time you listen to God's wisdom, as you invest in the better riches of listening to and obeying God's word, you're reconnecting with the tree of life now. You're bringing that tree of life into this world and offering that blessing to others. Psalm 1, the the book of Psalms, is one of our other major wisdom books in the Old Testament. And Psalm 1, the gateway to the Psalms, gives us the vision of you can be this kind of tree or that kind of tree. You can be a tree of life where you drop your roots down into God's Word and you have blessing and thriving to give to others, or you can be this dead tree because you're ignoring God's Word. Those are the options for human beings. So this tree imagery comes up again and again in the Bible. It was actually very common in other ancient Near Eastern religions. It comes up again in all kinds of religions, this imagery of the tree of life, our our longing to be reconnected to that fruitfulness. I grabbed a picture of a plum tree. I've been trying to grow fruit trees. We've had a little success with figs here, but you know, it's been a really hot summer, so it's hard to get much to to grow. My my long-term goal is to grow avocados, but I kill two or three avocado trees every year, so I'm not having a very good success rate with that. But, but the goal is to have these trees of life, right? Fruit. It's picked up in the New Testament. As we listen to God's Holy Spirit, then we bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Like These things will overflow out of us as we listen to God's voice. So that's the imagery that's that's here. Problem is, most of us, well, all of us, the entire human race, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we are the dead tree. We're the tree of, of non-life. We're the tree of, of violence and anger and hatred and selfishness. Here's the crazy thing. God loves us so much that even after we were locked out of the Garden of Eden, even as we were separated from the tree of life, he comes after us. That's what the good news of Jesus is. The way it's written in 1 Peter is like this. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter's picking up on the tree imagery, Right? What God has done is even as we've rejected the tree of life and fruitfulness, he's come after us and he said, I love you so much that I'm going to experience the tree of death. The cross is pictured as this dead tree, this lifeless rack of of timber and wood that Jesus died on for us, where he absorbed the wrath of God, where he was punished in our place. He was the ultimate sacrifice that took our place on the cross. Dying in our place, being punished for our sin, but that's not the end of the story, right? He rose from the grave. Through his resurrection, the tree of death has now become a tree of life for us. 
And so we're not just listening to the law of the Old Testament saying, God tells me how to live, and as I do what he says, I have life. That's part of the story. But the rest of the story is we've all rejected him, turned away from him, and he came after us and took our sin upon himself. So he still is giving us this tree of life as we listen to his voice, his voice of command in wisdom, but also his voice of grace. Come to me. I've forgiven you. I gave myself for you. Listen to God as he speaks to you and invest in these better riches. So we like to talk a lot about how investing in the better riches of wisdom looks like listening to his voice, right? I've tried to repeat that multiple times. It's a relationship with his word. It's not just learning stuff. It's good to learn stuff, but you also want to listen and obey. I've talked about this before, both in Hebrew and in Greek. The word obey is the same as the word for listen. Isn't that interesting? It's not the same in our language, is it? In our language, you can listen and ignore. But in their language, to listen, to really listen is to obey. Are you really listening? Are we really listening? Are we doing what he says? That's wisdom. Wisdom is hearing him and going, okay, well, I'm going I'm to do what he says. And again, the only way for human beings in our sinfulness to do that is to see that God has forgiven us, to see that he's gracious, because that changes our view of God. Otherwise, we think God is just harsh, and he's making our life miserable. But when we see he's gracious, and he forgives us, then we say, I will follow you anywhere. I'll do whatever you say. And we begin to develop the true fear of God, where he's greater than anything else. So what does it look like for you and for me to invest in true wisdom, the better riches, listening to his word and obeying his word. We talk a lot about joining groups. We make this a relational dynamic. Not only are we listening to God in relationship with him, but we want to get with other Christians and pray for each other. You say, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? How can I pray for you? We pray for each other. We look at God's word. We try to obey what he says. That, that's the simple life of investing in the better riches of God's word. And I just want to reiterate as well we're still going to invest in earthly riches as well, right? Like you need to get a job, you need to go about your normal business. But remember, there's this pattern that we've seen in the Old Testament in, in multiple different places, right? Like uh, the pattern of giving, the tithe, which we said in the Old Testament generally means like you give away 10%, but you keep 90%. When you really look at all the different tithes in the Old Testament, it was more like 23 or 33% that they were giving away. But the idea is like you have a majority of your income that you spend on your family your business, your life, but then you're always keeping a little minority fringe where you're giving that away to honor God's word and to serve other people, right? We see that same pattern played out in farming. They had this law called gleaning. And it said, if you're a farmer, leave a little margin on the edge where poor people can come and grab some of the fruit. It's called gleaning. Leave a little, a little margin, right? Most of it is for you, your operation, your business, right? But as we invest in the better riches of God's wisdom, we're always leaving a little edge for others. Even the Sabbath reveals this principle as well, right? The Sabbath law is work six days. Be about your business, six days. And then one day you set aside for the Lord, for serving others, for worshiping God, for trusting Him, for resting. So we see these patterns, but we always want to make sure we're prioritizing the better riches of God's wisdom. Are you investing in hearing His word and obeying Him? And then we've got the whole rest of our life to invest in other things as well. As we transition from this point to the next point, I want to use some of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. 
As we study uh, Proverbs, I keep seeing these echoes. The Sermon on the Mount echoes a lot of the language of Proverbs. So Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's giving this sermon and he reflects a lot of the language of Proverbs, a lot of the language of wisdom, a lot of the language of you're blessed if you do this, you're happy if you do this. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about how we can be anxious about our money, about our food, about where we're going to live, about what we're going to do. He's like, don't worry. God is big. God is in control. He's going to take care of you. Jesus says, if God takes care of the lilies of the field, the flowers, and he takes care of the birds, that means he'll take care of you as well. I was telling my wife the other day, I was like, ah, I agreed against that a little bit because I'd, I'd like a better standard of living than a flower or a bird, honestly, you know? But he calls me to trust him, right? It's a relationship. Okay, God, I'm a bird. I'm a flower. I'm just, I'm trusting you. I'm sitting waiting on you. And so Jesus in his sermon in Matthew 6 saying, don't worry, but trust God. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So he's saying, as you actually trust God with the ultimate riches of his word, then the, the other, the ordinary riches will be added as well. And that's part of what the proverb is saying. That's part of what Jesus is saying as well. Again, not an automatic, you're just going to automatically be the richest person in town if you obey God. It's, it's not a one-to-one mechanical thing, but it's as we trust him, he's going to take care of us, right? Might be at different levels, right? But he's going to take care of us. We're going to trust him to be our ultimate provider. Matthew 6, 34, he says, therefore, don't be anxious. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself. Trust in God. So this brings us then this transition from Jesus saying, don't worry about money, but trust God. This brings us to the next point. We should invest in relative fearlessness. Invest in relative fearlessness. We see this in verses 19 through 26. I say relative because of course you should have common sense fear, right? Uh, If you're going to cross the street, Tremere is a very busy street. You're walking across Tremere uh, if you just walk right out in the street and you don't look, I would say you're stupid. That would be the biblical term for it, right? But if you're wise, you have common sense fear. If you, you look, you look, right, before you cross the street. You've got to have a common sense fear of getting run over. There's all kinds of common sense fears like that. A common sense fear of if I eat candy all the time, I'm going to get sick and die. I shouldn't eat candy all the time, right? Like there's common sense fears of look before you cross the street, take care of your health, invest wisely, Uh, work hard, take care of your normal life. But as we develop the fear of God, seeing God as ultimate, all the other fears will kind of slide away as secondary. It's a relative fearlessness. And that's what's going to be described here in verses 19 through 26. So starting in verse 19, he says it this way, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So he's saying wisdom. God's truth was there with God when he created everything. So we're starting with a big vision of God. If you want relative fearlessness, God has to be bigger than everything else. That's key number one, okay? You've got to see God as the creator. You've got to see God as the great and awesome, holy God. You've got to start there. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. The deep is language from the creation account, right? The deep, it's this picture of the 
ocean depths. It's often a terrifying image for the Old Testament people. The ocean is scary, right? Most of you that are in the military, you're in the army, not the navy for a reason, right? You know the ocean is scary. I think you can connect with this, the Hebrew worldview of like the ocean depths are horrifying. They're, they're terrifying. That was part of their vision. Often it was used interchangeably with the idea of like hell, right? The abyss, the depths, there are sea monsters, there are sharks and stuff in there. You've got to be careful, right? And we see God in his creation overpowering the scary parts of creation. He's bigger even than the depths, than the vast ocean. And then we see this other side with water as well. There's the incredible power of a flood, of an ocean. And then there's the, the gentle, sustaining, life-giving power of the dew and the rain. Do you see that in the text? By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Oh, how we right now in this area across the country are hungering for the dew and for the rain to feed the ground. God is the same God who overpowers the great depths and he's gently sustaining us and the flowers and the birds. This is that same God. And so if you want relative fearlessness, it starts by seeing God as great. Do you see God as great? Do you see God as awesome? Verse 21, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. He's again using the imagery he used earlier in chapter three of almost like a, a lucky amulet. Amulet would be a word for like a, you know, like a lucky magic necklace you might have. In ancient Near Eastern religions, a lot of people, uh, even today and in ancient religions, would have like lucky charms of different kinds that they would wear. This will keep me safe, right? The Bible contradicts that and says the only real lucky charm you need is God himself. God is the one that keeps you safe. He's the necklace that you want to wear around your neck. He's the one that is your true protection. That's the image that's being turned here, right? We have this idea of like, oh, this will keep me safe. No, God, listening to his voice, that will keep you safe. That will be like this adornment around your neck. Verse 23, then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. The wicked, those who don't trust in God's forgiveness or his law, the wicked are those who are just waiting for judgment. But God says if we trust him, he, he gives us life and salvation, new creation. It says, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. I use that foot analogy twice, right? Like he'll, he'll keep your foot from slipping and he'll, he'll keep your foot from getting caught. Uh, years ago, I broke my ankle playing basketball uh, with my son, with some friends. And just about six months later, after it had just barely healed, we went to the Grand Canyon. We were doing some hiking. And I can remember like for a year after my ankle healed, I worried about falling. I worried about my foot slipping. That had never happened before, right? I'd lived 40 years, never worried about falling over. <laughs> Relatively nimble, I guess, you know, like I just never fell over randomly. And I thought, oh, there's no problem. But then after you break your ankle, you're like, oh no, you're worried, right? You're worried about your foot slipping. He says here too, he'll guard you against your foot being caught. 
Um, I grabbed a picture here of a football player running. We were taught a, a specific method when we played football that if you were running down the sideline with the ball, run as fast as you can, right? Get to the touchdown, make it to the end. But if you were running, we used to say running in traffic, you would drive your feet. You would stomp your feet as hard as you could, right? So that your foot would not get caught. Here's the thing. That was a a good thing to learn in football, right? And I think sometimes even this is a good thing for you to learn when you hit an obstacle, right? Drive harder, push harder, keep going. If you're doing the right thing, right? If you're doing the right thing, Keep going. Don't just give up, right? There's a common sense fear there. But here's the problem. I think sometimes in our flesh, in our strength, God is trying to get our attention. And instead of just driving our feet like mad, he's saying, trust me. Will you talk to me? Will you pray, right? Instead of depending on your flesh, I can drive my feet hard enough to break any tackle. No, when we face obstacles and difficulties, our first instinct should be to call out to God. Again, you got to be wise about this. That doesn't mean roll over and play dead and just pray, right? Keep going. But too often, I think we have a congregation full of strong people. I respect your strength. Some of you excel in your fields. You're strong. You're independent. You're warriors. But, but the bad side of that is you can start to depend on your strength, The Bible teaches us to depend on Him, on God. We use our strength to glorify God, but we depend on Him. He says that even wisdom makes our sleep sweet. When you lie down, is your sleep sweet or are you worrying about things? One of the elders that helped us to plant the church, he he lives in Dallas now, but I remember he used to say whenever he wakes up in the middle of the night and he can't sleep, he thinks that that is God's signal for him to pray. And that's been really helpful for me. Okay, I'm, I'm worrying about stuff. That means I need to pray, right? Wake up in the middle of the night, cold sweat, worrying about this or that or my to-do list or whatever it might be, anxieties, pray. And so that, that's what I believe he's teaching us here. A relative fearlessness means the more we trust in God, the more those lesser fears melt away. The more we fear God more than man, the more we will walk in confidence, the more our sleep will actually be sweet. The more we will run at full speed, not worrying about our our feet being tripped up or being caught. Because every time we hit a snag, we pray first. Yes, we should persevere, but we pray first. God, help me. God, help me to see you as ultimate. Help me to trust you. Don't be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence. Is the Lord your confidence? Do you trust Him or are you trusting in yourself to get you out of every jam and every difficulty? How how do we apply this? Again, I think it starts in this section. It started with the bigness of God. We look at God. God is big. God is awesome, right? So it's a worship discipline. So I want to talk about a couple of things. One is a a prayer discipline. The other is a worship discipline. So in prayer, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says that if you worry... Don't continue in your worry or continue in your anxiousness, but pray. Thank God for his provision. Ask him to help you. So even in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it sounds like it's saying, how dare you ever worry? Um, Because the grammar is a little strange there, but really the grammar in Greek is saying, don't continue on in your worry. Don't worry, but pray. That's what it says in English. 
That means don't keep on in your worrying. When the worry comes, run to God. God, help me. God, you're great. God, you've provided for me before. Show me what I need to do next. Help me. Meet me here. Walk with me. Prayer is such an important discipline if you want to live with relative fearlessness. Again, you want to keep a common sense fearlessness, right? Doesn't mean if you pray, then you never have to look before you cross the street again. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying your life is not consumed by, oh no, a car's going to get me, right? You're not just sitting there every day worrying about a car running over. No, you're like, God's, God's going to take care of me. Am I going to look when I cross the street? Yeah, but I'm going to trust God to take care of me. I'm going to pray. The other thing is in worship. I think this would be a really helpful way to think about communion. When we take communion, when we come to the communion table, we're saying, God, I trust your provision. It's this covenant renewal where we're saying, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for me. So as I take the bread and take the cup, this is me signifying that I trust in Jesus. I'm trusting in him instead of myself. So here's what I'd like you to do when you take communion. If you're a follower of Christ and you're taking communion with us or at some other church, I want you to envision the thing you're worried about the most, the fear that's keeping you up at night saying, I'm just going to lay that down at the table as I pick up the bread and cup. I'm really worried about the economy. I'm going I'm to lay down my savings account and I'm going to take the bread and cup. I'm going to say Jesus is my only hope. I'm really worried about this relationship. I'm going to lay that down at the foot of the cross and I'm going to take Jesus. I'm, I'm really worried about the sickness about this thing that the doctor saw on my scan, I'm going to lay that down and I'm going to trust in Jesus. Then I'll have a relative fearlessness. Do we want to take evasive action to, you know, to take care of our financial needs and our medical needs and all these other needs? Yes, we do. But we say, ultimately, I'm trusting in God. And I look forward to a future where I'll see him face to face. I don't live every day worrying about stumbling anymore. And guess what? If I stumble, I fall down and I die, If I'm trusting in God, then I'm with him, and it's okay. So it's a relative fearlessness. Okay, the last point is invest in true power. Invest in true power, verses 27 through 35. Invest in true power. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't withhold good when it's in your power to do it. So do good when you can do good. Again, I think we want to think about this in context of those Old Testament patterns I've talked about before of like, generally your money is your money, but you always want to set aside some of it to give to others, right? So when you got that ready to give, give it away, right? Don't hold back. And so we have these general patterns of I have like a normal daily routine of living my normal life, but I'm always going to kind of hold a margin to give and serve and help others with that. And so when it's within your power, don't, don't hold back. He goes on to say in verse 28, don't say to your neighbor, go, come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you, right? It's like, just, just go ahead and do it. In this situation, you're worried more about what they think about you, right? You're trying to save face and act like everything's fine when really you don't want to serve. He's saying, don't, again, fear God, don't fear man, don't worry about what they think of you. If you can give, give. If you can't, say no, right? Like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Verse 29, Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. There's like an intensification that's coming with each verse, right? Don't plan evil to the one that trusts you. You're not going to get ahead that way by doing evil things. You might get ahead in the short term, but there's going to be a terror, as he said in the previous verses, a terror at the judgment. So he said, don't plan evil to those who dwell trustingly beside you. Verse 30, 
Do not contend, that means to, to fight or struggle. Don't contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm, right? A lot of people think true power is going around picking fights with people. God says true power is serving others and trusting God. So don't contend with them when they haven't done anything to you. Verse 31, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. I think typically men struggle with this more than women. I know as a little boy, you always wanted to be the scariest bad guy in the movie, right? Like you, there was something that you admired about that power, right? The Scripture says no. True power is to do what's right. True power is found in righteousness. Probably all genders, we, we struggle with it in different ways, right? Well, I'm going to take this shortcut to get ahead. No, don't, don't envy those that are taking shortcuts to get ahead. Don't envy those that are taking advantage of other people, whether it be physical violence or relational violence or whatever it might be. Don't envy the person of violence. He goes on and says, For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord but the upright are in his confidence. What does that mean? It's not going to last. That person that looks so powerful, that person that looks like they're getting ahead with their fists or they're getting ahead with their gossip, they're not actually getting ahead. They're an abomination to the Lord. He goes on and he says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. I want to talk first about the image he uses of the house, right? He says there in verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the house or the dwelling of the righteous. House means more than just um, shelter. That's an important part, right? Like, like if you have a family, you want to shelter your family, right? Like that's an important thing. I grabbed a picture of a house, just a simple, normal house. Um, houses are blessings. Having a physical house is a blessing. Again, Proverbs uses these physical blessings to symbolize something greater. So do you want a physical house? Yeah, you, you want a good apartment or house or something to live in to, to keep your family safe, right? But the word in the scripture is used in a, in a greater sense. There's like more to it than that. It's often used in the sense of like the infrastructure that you need in place to bless others. It's used often of dynasties, right? The house of kings. 2 Samuel 7.11 is where God prophesies that King David would have a great dynasty. He would have a great house is the language that's used there. What does that mean? That means he's going to have a legacy that's going to follow him. And we know with King David that wasn't with his physical descendants that came in the next few generations. We had to wait for Jesus for that to be fulfilled, the great King Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. And so we have this picture of a house being this legacy, this dynasty of, of blessing that you give to others. And so if you want to have an impact, if you want to have a dynasty, if you want to have a, a business, an operation, an organization that blesses other people, we are to invest in the true power of, of God's word, of walking with God, of trusting him and obeying what he says. That's what we're called to invest in. And as we do that, then we'll have a house. Then we'll have a business. Again, not mechanically like, like oh, then your, then your restaurant will really do well. Maybe, but he's saying ultimately you'll have a spiritual impact on the world around you. He'll give you a spiritual house to bless others, a destiny that impacts the world 
There's a really famous verse contained here in verse 34. In verse 34, uh, the Hebrew translation into the English here is, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Which, perfectly good translation, but there's an old Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And that's what the apostles were using. They were using the Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible. And so when you hear the apostles in the New Testament quote the Bible, it often has a slightly different vibe to it. And so this verse is actually quoted twice in the New Testament. It's quoted in uh, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. And it says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you see true power in being proud, being violent, being a gossip? Or do you see true power in humility, serving others as Jesus did? Biblical wisdom is saying, you know what, I see, I see true power in walking with God and trusting that he's going he's gonna to take care of me. Things are going to be okay. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Towards the scorners, he's scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This word honor can be translated also as glory. It's the Hebrew word kavod. It means like heaviness, substantial, right? Like God is heavy. He matters. That's, that's true power is in God himself. And God shares this glory with his image bearers. He makes Adam and Eve. He makes you and me in his image. And when we sin and turn from God, we're, we're like fluffy and light. We're nothing. We're like, uh, Psalm 1 says, we're like the chaff that blows away, the husk. We're not the kernel. We're not the weight. But when we walk with God, when we listen to his voice and we accept his grace and his forgiveness, he, he shares his weighty with, weightiness with us. Honor, substantialness, true power. He gives us his spirit to be able to endure difficulty and to walk with him in a way that, that honors him, that shows glory back to him as the true source. How do, we, how do we actually live out true power? I want to give a little image, close with this, and then we'll wrap up. Jesus demonstrated his true power by washing feet. By washing feet. The two greatest things Jesus is known for is dying on the cross for our sins and washing feet. If you want to live a normal life of serving others like Jesus, I recommend to go with the foot washing first. If you die on the cross for other people, you're not going to have opportunity to serve anybody else right after that. And so the washing of the feet is more of the daily thing, right? God might genuinely, joking aside, genuinely call you to die for others, right? As soldiers, you're willing to die for others. And that might be something he calls you to, but in your just daily life, the mundane daily life, more often than not, he's calling you to wash feet. What does that mean? That means just humble, ordinary tasks where you're displaying true power by doing little things that other people are not willing to do. By saying, I don't need to take glory for myself. I can trust in God who gives me his glory and that enables me to do anything. Whether it be a small, humble task or a big task or whatever it is, I can serve those around me. And in John 14, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it says he knew that he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. That's the secret of true power. That's the secret of true greatness. Do you know where you've come from? Do you know where you're going? That's living by faith. That's exercising true power. If you know 
that God is good and you can trust Him and you know that you're going back to be with Him in the end, that gives you incredible freedom. Out of that, you have this true power to be generous, to serve others, to not be always guarding your reputation and your own honor and your own bigness. But you can turn that over to the Lord and you can trust Him. Say, God, you may want me to do big things today. You may want me to do small things today, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to obey you. So the big idea is that we would invest in wisdom. But investing in wisdom is what really counts. That's the important thing, right? More important than all these other things that we could invest in. And so I'm thinking as I hear this uh, language of investing and the contrast between earthly riches and spiritual riches, I'm thinking of the image in Revelation 3. Revelation chapter 3 is a uh, reproof, it's a, a contradiction, a rebuke, if you will, of the church in Laodicea. They're being corrected. Jesus says, hey, I'm correcting you because I do love you, right? So it's a hard correction. It's a rebuke, but it's out of love. And there in Laodicea, particularly this church, the the letter to them in Revelation chapter 3, he says, you think you're really rich. You think you have everything you need. Sounds a lot like modern Americans. You think that you've achieved greatness. But Jesus says, but actually you're poor and you're blind and you're naked and you're pitiful and you're miserable. But here I am. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If you would hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and and you with me. We will have real communion. There will be real unity and we will be investing in his voice, listening to who Jesus is. As we say throughout our studies, we always say that we study this book because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. That we're not just listening to ideas. We're not just listening to information, but we're listening to a person, a person who loves us and invites us into relationship with us. So I want to invite you as well to invest in this relationship with true wisdom, the Logos, the Word Himself. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you have given yourself for us. You tell us how to live, and then not only do you tell us how to live, but as we rebel and as As we've sinned against you, you continue to chase after us. You continue to pursue us. Thank you that you've come for us. You've come to save us, to serve us. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice, to submit to you, to turn from our sin and turn from depending on our flesh and, and trust in you, that we would trust you, we would walk with you. We pray that you would help us to do this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.